Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 4. I'm your host, Casey Tiger. I'm an author and a spiritual director. As a spiritual director, what I notice is people are often coming to me because they want to take a step into the deeper places in themselves. Which is interesting because a lot of times when I hear criticism around spiritual formation or spiritual direction, people might say, oh, well, that's just so loose, that's so out there or so disconnected from reality. And the most interesting part of that to me is in the conversations I have with people in silent retreats, when they're not being silent, of course, or in spiritual direction is that the work that's being done is very much connected to reality. And it's some of the hardest stuff people do, especially when they really begin to explore who they are and where God is active in their lives. And that's why I so appreciated the conversation that I have today with my guest, Lisa Colon DeLay. Lisa's book, The Wild Land Within, covers topics from the church fathers to neuroscience, to our struggles with how we've related to black, indigenous, Latinx, people of color. And it invites everyone to find new wisdom into how to explore these places that are very much connected to reality. But sometimes if we don't take the step back, if we don't take the deep breath, if we don't follow spirit into the deepest parts of who we are, we'll never have a chance to really explore them. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with my friend, author and podcaster, Lisa Colon DeLay. Lisa, thanks for taking time to talk today. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to be able to speak with you. It's cool, too. We talked before we started recording about uh, I was able to be on your podcast, which is wonderful. And you've had mm. you've had some people on who I just think the world of. And uh, so it's kind of nice for me to be on the other side of the, mm-hmm. of the of the mic of this of the question asking. I actually, got, I actually got to have my editor for my books as a guest when she wrote a book, and so that was even more interesting oh. because it was like now I'm going to ask you all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get what you deserve uh, at this point. <laughs> that's right. Oh, she's such a kind soul. Mm. I couldn't do it. I, I I chickened out at the end. So. <laughs> well, we begin the the conversation, and I, I I really feel like of all the guests that I've had. I think everyone has a, a unique and wonderful thing to offer on this question, but you, because of what you're writing uh, in your book, I think I really am curious where you would land on this. Um, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you begin? Where's the starting point for you? Yeah, that's a really broad question, but I tend to have a very personal take on it. Um, the wisdom that is sort of timeless wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God that we are given, I believe, as a grace, I think is directly connected to our humanness, but in regards to our humility. And I think that when we are most receptive to becoming wise or learning or having that kind of tender heart is when we are in a really we have a really good view of reality and our place in it, which, you know, can either be, um, I'm a a lowly worm that 
is not worthy of love or on the other side, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? You know, those two things don't help us become wise. Those two frames of reference in our lives. I would say that um, from a teachable spirit and, and a humble spirit comes wisdom. And of course, it's not just knowledge, but knowledge applied wisely. So um, the times when I've been able to pick up nuggets of wisdom along the way have usually involved a learning experience, the suffering, or really paying attention to somebody I admire that has the fruit of the spirit. It's interesting how things like failure and suffering and things that humble us, they're almost like courses in graduate education. They they so fast track the learning. Mm. You learn so much more when you're humbled by a situation than you would if you just had a, a clean run at it. And were, it, there's just so much more in the reflective. I love how you positioned wisdom in the heart, mm -hmm. that there is a, there's a hard aspect to it. Too many times we answer that wisdom question with a cognitive, it's what we know and how we do something with what we know. But you talk about, you put the heart at the center of that. Is that something that you, is that something that you learned is that something that you have come to learn, come to know just through experience? What, why, yeah. why does wisdom kind of center in the heart for you? Well, it's the heart in terms of what Dallas Willard would say actually about it. We were talking about him a little bit before we hit record. And the heart in the, in the ancient meaning of it, the wellspring of life, the place, the decision center of ourselves, um, which isn't the beating, the beating part of our heart, obviously that's just a metaphor, but also, um, not i'm not talking about emotions either i'm not talking about um anything split off really it's part of our whole organism but if that part of us that can be attuned to god and follow god or uh, can rebel it's that decision center that i mean when i say heart and so it is a lot different than the modern ideas of of heart and what I've tried to do in my book um, a lot is break down all these false dichotomies of head and heart and body and mind and think of ourselves as a total organism with an inner terrain and an inner life and and kind of use a new framework for understanding ourselves that's not so dualistic. It's one of the things I love about your book is you you have drawn on sources from neuroscience to the desert fathers and the ancient mm -hmm. the ancient spiritual masters who all are who both of those disciplines though they're separated by hundreds of years of development mm -hmm. they all are saying basically the same thing that we are way more integrated as human beings and therefore as spiritual beings mm -hmm. we're way more integrated than we ever thought we were mm -hmm. and that's one of the things i love about what you bring is that you're you're constantly pointing to that, that interplay, that interconnection. I wonder who is it or what was it that pointed that out to you? What was the sign or the semaphore that kind of pointed you in the direction of seeing how holistic, mm. how, how integrated we are? Right. That really became more and more noticeable the longer I study the writings of the earliest uh, leaders of the church including the apostles and, and Jesus's ways, because those ways are 
I mean, this this is funny because people will get in trouble sometimes. Christians will get in trouble. It's like um, I've heard this <laughs> somewhere. Oh, that sounds like Eastern religion. It's like it. It sounds like Eastern religion because it's Eastern religion. <laughs> yes, it's Jesus Middle Eastern. Jesus was not Roman. <laughs> no, no, Jesus was not American. He doesn't sound like an American. Doesn't think like an American. And the spirituality of the Jewish people in that part of the world and, and eastward is all we spiritual is everything. There is no non-spiritual. There's no secular thing. You're just a spirit with a body and you're this it's inside a soul, you know, this whole you. And that's just how we come packaged. And then um, it's easy, though, when we split those things up to kind of shirk our responsibility and think, well, you know, that was because uh, this this part of my mind was distracted or, you know, this weakness I have over here, you know, and, and split off into othering ourselves and othering others. Uh, but when we think of things as, as Jesus does, as best we can, obviously we're quite removed from his time and place, but it is really um, not whatsoever a segmented view of personhood. You talk um, about the work that you do, and you use the language of a, a listening ministry. Mm-hmm. Um and we've talked in the past about the the practice of spiritual direction or listening ministry or um, the anamkara, mm-hmm. as the Celts called it, the soul friend. Mm-hmm. You also talk about listening to your own life. Mm-hmm. And your book is as much a book about how integrated we are as it is about you noticing and listening to your own story. Mm-hmm. Can you frame your narrative that you the narrative you bring to this book a bit for the people who are listening? Like, mm-hmm. What is the perspective that you bring as you as you write? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question because it's obviously a basic question, but getting to the nugget of what is happening in this book, it is a little different than other spiritual books that I've found. What I'm trying to do with the wild land within is describe all the places in us that are unseen. And that includes many things, memories, aspirations, experiences, culture, everything that we can't see that has influenced or that is part of us is really most of us. Uh, So I wanted to make sure to address the whole person and including the things that are not language-based and that are not chronology-based. So I talk about uh, core wounds. Some of these core wounds happen even before we can speak and we just feel unsafe in our bodies because something must have happened. I wind up talking a little bit about spiritual practices, but the one thing I found lacking in a lot of books about spiritual formation and practices was attending to the deep work that they do and sometimes they produce in us because god is working this way for us they will produce things that we are very surprised to find out Uh, we might see bitterness or anger resentment or unforgiveness surface as we do things like deeper prayer forms 
And I saw plenty of books explaining things like praying the hours or the examen prayer or Lexio Divina, but I didn't see anywhere that there was somebody offering a kind of spiritual direction and companionship for what happens after those things get triggered and, and um, reactivated in our life that we might find uncomfortable or unpleasant, but we can work and journey all the way through to the other side. And I think God invites us to do that. You, you bring that, that perspective so clearly and, and wonderfully. You also bring, and you're talking about, you know, reading other books on formation and spiritual practices and finding something, Mm -hmm. you know, doing different things in this one. I found one of the things that I found in your book that was very important was the way you explore voices that have been marginalized Mm -hmm. and left behind. How does that, how does the idea of marginalization rise out of your own story? Most of it comes vicariously uh, in my own story because my dad, who has passed away uh, for a while now, but he was uh, Latino. He was brown man who uh, couldn't pass for white. Unlike me, I can pass for white. I was born in Puerto Rico, learned to speak Spanish and English at the same time. And um have been able to pass for white and that gives me tremendous amounts of privilege when i walk into a store when i ask for help um people have said to me um things that are very disparaging about brown people in in front of me not realizing that's my family that you're speaking about and um i remember we were getting a mortgage our first mortgage and i can i usually check the box that says uh you know, Latino, Latina, Latinx. And, um, and sometimes I, I don't, I don't think about it. It just cr- doesn't um, come up. So my husband says to this um, bank loan officer, um, she says, are you, does, do either one of you have any kind of Hispanic Latin heritage? And, and he goes, well, what would, if we did, what would that mean? She goes, oh, probably that you wouldn't get the loan. And I thought, Oh, <laughs> this oh is the gosh. kind of privilege we're talking about. Um, I don't know if she meant you won't get the loan because you probably won't have good credit or you won't get the loan because we don't trust darkies. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was really eye-opening. And my dad had to run into that a lot. He tried to assimilate as best he could. He was basically allowing erasure to happen of his culture and his personhood. But it took a big toll on him. And he eventually left the faith completely, but Mm. he left a false God. I think uh, the God of white centeredness, the, the God that looks like an old white man in the sky with a lightning bolt and ready to smite people and angry at people until Jesus takes, (laughs) takes our sins away. And it was a really eye opening experience for me to see him deconstruct. And then of course I had to deconstruct what was God up to and um, why won't my parents get back together and, why doesn't God answer those prayers? What I noticed is that as people coming in to the United States from the southern border, Christians is, is who these people are, uh, being treated like infestations, being objectified and being mistreated, and not a lot of people really being appalled and determined to do something about it 
I looked at these people and I saw my dad in their faces could very easily um, be him. He looked so Hispanic. <laughs> so I, I think I was really uh, invited by that to decenter whiteness in how we learn about spiritual formation. And when I mean whiteness, I'm really talking about an empire theology that is one of dominance and the gospel is something that came to the poor and the oppressed. And uh, those are the people that Jesus was speaking to. And that is the kind of person he came as to poor uh, brown man in an oppressed situation with his people. And that's the good news. It comes, doesn't come to the rich and the powerful. It comes to the people who need it most. You made a statement in the book that white supremacy doesn't come with burning crosses and pointed hoods. A lot of times it's baked in. It's mm -hmm. it's subtleties. And, and so as we start to think about, as I as a white male have been pressed by a lot of people, guests on this show, but others that I've read, um, who you identify as, and some people aren't familiar with the acronym, but Black, Indigenous, Latinx, people of color. Mm -hmm. Bill, Bill Pock is the right. way the acronym reads. When you talk about that, mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's an education and a re-education and a perspective shift that goes on mm -hmm. for people like me and hopefully for other people who listen. For you coming with that lens a lot of the spiritual masters i mean not the desert fathers because they're egyptian that's a, we'll we'll deal with that in a second but a lot of the later spiritual quote unquote spiritual masters are european folks right what how what is the gift that you find coming out of the black indigenous latinx mm -hmm. people of color from that tradition, those traditions, that really supports and enlivens and catalyzes spiritual life and spiritual growth? I love that question. And what you're saying is so true. If we're looking, um, using the algorithms that have been given to us, and we're looking at who gets published and who doesn't, <laughs> we're we're looking at books on spiritual formation, often from cloistered um, religious men in religious life that come from Europe, but that is just one a tiny minority voice. Uh, actually, the, the majority of the people in the world that are Christian are brown and black people. They have stories, they have books, they have schools, they have entire traditions that go back centuries, if not millennia. And this is what I mean by decentering. We tend to think of, well, there's there's a theology I learned, and that's theology, qua theology. And then there's these other contextual ones, like, I guess the feminists have something. I guess those black people have something. I guess those Coptics, do they do something? I don't know. And we tend to think that those are the outlier <laughs> marginal ones. And it's just because they haven't been centered. They haven't been included in the entire orchestra or the symphony of what God is up to. Uh, we're just here hearing the uh, brass section here with the the white American uh, Anglo-Euro inter uh, interests and centricities. So just even framing it like that, um, like 
we don't hear too much from those people. We don't hear from them, not because they're not there. They're there. Uh, and thankfully, there's, there's more... Um, there's more books being published by people of color. But in our minds, and, and I have fallen for this just as much as anyone. When I went to seminary, I, I read basically dead white European educated moneyed men. <laughs> and so yeah. that was right. told that that's how it works. You know, this is, let's learn the real stuff. Let's learn the basics, you know. Um, but that was a anemic view of what God is up to in the global church, in the historic church. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to disrupt to say, there is so much more here than the last 150 years of what America has been doing with Christianity. We're a real fringy kind of way of looking at Christianity and what God is up to. And by the way, God's not a Christian. So <laughs> I'm trying to kind of pull some of these veils and assumptions uh, away so that we can see what God is up to is it's so beautiful that we're allowed to be involved. Why we've centered our story uh, as white folks, you know, is has to do with power, has to do with keeping the status quo. And for most of us, it's unconscious. It's, it's like I said, it's baked in. You might not realize, oh, if you went to school and you, you hardly read anything by, say, Black women, a womanist theology or uh, something like that, you really just got this little tiny smattering. And so I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to do those things to say, check out um, Gustavo Gutierrez and, and liberation theology, which is about a certain context that comes out of South America, but it speaks to all of us and it can keep us humble. Like we're saying, it can keep us uh, becoming more wise because we're realizing, oh, there's very important things coming out of this group here, but then over here too, and here in Korea and here in the Philippines. And what God is up to uh, is just so much broader than most of us realize. And to your point about wisdom being located in the heart and using Dallas Willard's heart and, and center of will imagery, there are things from other traditions, other voices that we weren't exposed to that, that capture our, our hearts, that move us in a, in a very, I, and I, some people would, would suggest that that's a, you know, it's too emotional, it's too experiential and therefore subjective. But we make tons of decisions with our emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just be honest about it. There are very few people who make like a, a quote-unquote rational decision about who they're going to marry or why right. <laughs> why they like some of the things that they like. Mm -hmm. There is always – we are integrated. We are thinking – I think somebody said we feel like we're thinking people who sometimes feel, but we're really feeling people who sometimes <laughs> think. I, I really yeah. like that. And I think we're, what you're pointing out is – the voices that we haven't heard, that unfamiliarity gives it a mm. chance to have like that surprise. Yeah, that's right. And and that's that's the other thing. A lot of times what we might deem as, well, that that probably, that doesn't, I'm not sure how I feel about that. That doesn't sit well with me. 
a lot of times those those are opinions and those are based on preferences and our favorites and our familiarity. Um, even something like um, women as ordained pastors, for instance. So you might certain groups are going to say, well, that that doesn't seem right. That that's not in the Bible. But when we look at the the even the conservative. Um, like out of the holiness tradition, the Wesley tradition and the Nazarenes, they all have uh, women leadership and women pastors and it's familiar to them. So it's interesting, like how we decide what sort of sits well with us uh, is actually maybe that's the thing that God likes, but the thing I'm unfamiliar with and I'm uncomfortable with, that's the thing that's probably not of God. <laughs> the influences that are hidden in our lives. So these influencers, uh, predispose us to to like particular things and not other things. So, for instance, we might say, think, well, those Christians who raise their hands and dance, they're they're out of control. They're not really using their minds, but they're embodying their spirituality, and they might wind up feeling much more whole in the end when we've just been stuck in this little compartment in our brain. And so, I think what yeah. God is up to, based on our personalities or our culture, or um, in the grand scheme of things, it usually will involve things that are unfamiliar or are uncomfortable to us. And we have to check and ask ourselves, why exactly is that? Is that more of an opinion? Or do you have a really, really good basis to think that? And, and people will weaponize the Bible to, to make it uh, confirm with their original assumption. But having a spirit that is even if you don't agree with something that is just willing to say, well, this might be a way that God moves. Uh, I don't have the final answer on that. God has the final answer on that. And maybe we can have, um, maybe we can be more influenced by people and find out these hidden treasures of what God is up to. And I feel, even as you're saying that, I just, I feel that there's, there's such a freedom in being able to have that open-handed approach to say, I can't, I can't be, I'm not, and I maybe even can't go with you on that particular belief or practice. Mm -hmm. But it, if it, if it's deepening you in kindness, and mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about fruits of the spirit, if you're yeah. growing in your love for others and the fruits of the spirit, mm -hmm. I, I can't argue with that either. Right. And so Such some of that point. exploration that you're talking about has as much to do with us releasing, kind of having an open-handed approach to the perspectives of others, even from other traditions, mm -hmm. and at the same time acknowledging them and seeing them as valuable and and hopeful, which I think is interesting. That makes it so interesting that you chose the metaphor of land mm. for the book because there's a good deal of the opening part of the book where you talk about Native American experience mm -hmm. and Native American spirituality. And of course, historically, the, the idea of land and Native American experience is, is so tightly tied together. Mm -hmm. right. But also as, a, as Christian tradition springs from a land-based theology that is most of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. There is this there's this sense of land as a location, mm -hmm. land as something that's expansive, but also land can be possessed, taken, fought for, mm -hmm. violated, um, 
colonized, all those things. How how did that imagery of land emerge for you, and how how did you how did you find your way to starting from that point and, and weaving that into the the way that you wrote the book? Two major influences um, happened to me that I that I really kind of took off with this. One it was that Parker Palmer. I mentioned this in the book too. He talks about. Uh, the soul being like a wild animal and then if you sit down uh in a forest and you wait and you just wait there animals will start coming out if you're quiet enough and still enough and that is the the way our soul also comes out the hidden parts of us the fearful parts of us and there was this imagery of nature in in that that i thought well that's that's really hitting hard that's hitting deep and and then the other part was expanding on the parable of the four soils that Jesus lays out for us. And that is a parable about the inner life. It you know, talks about whether it's the weedy soil, the trampled soil, the rocky soil with no top, just a little topsoil and rocks beneath, and then the good soil. And when I took those things a little more deeply, I thought this, this is all of us. We all have these soils within us, this different types of climate, if you will, or ways of being receptive to God, or maybe letting our worries crowd things out and distractions and the cares of the world crowd things out, or perhaps um, our soil is trampled. What I wanted to do is like explode the metaphor into a whole ecosystem with weather systems and with climate and the climate controls what kind of weather comes through. And these are often things in our climate have nothing to do with any conscious choices we've made at times. So it might just be, you know, did you grow up in an abusive home or did you um, have to move around a lot as a kid? Did you have poverty? Did you have wealth? All these things created an inner climate within you that produces different kinds of weather. And when I talk about the weather, I'm pulling from Evagrius Ponticus, who talks about the eight afflicting thoughts. And eventually this was used by Pope Gregory to talk about those consequences of the afflicting thoughts that that are temptations to us, but they're not sinful until we attach to them and give them energy and attention. Pope Gregory later on in a very Western way said, um, I'm gonna take those eight thoughts and I'm going to talk about the consequences and the sins and the seven deadly sins, and then we'll know how to punish you properly. <laughs> you know, basically, um, these are the things you better stay away from when you're sinning. But with Evagrius, he was talking about staying healthy. He wasn't talking about crime and punishment and penance and confession, although confession is part of the life of any disciple, and it has to do with being guided uh, in the Eastern church, there's a lot more spiritual guidance that isn't like problematic for therapy purposes or something like that. It's just lifelong and you can rely on a spiritual guide. Evagrius was one of those spiritual guides and he talked about these internal temptations that come to us and how we should be prepared for them because they're coming. If you're human, they're coming, (laughs) Uh, these different afflicting thoughts. And he was really guiding those ascetics in the desert to um, to understand that when you're in the desert and you have a really lame menu that you're going to 
be tempted to gluttony and hoarding food and eating, uh, gorging yourself and being very preoccupied on food when you're actually trying to pray. So there really is this kind of ecosystem that I was trying to draw out that, and for me, it's kind of like thinking of the journey of life as an adventure as well. And there's places that we don't know and there's places that we know very well. And then there's there's places of wound and hurt. They're sort of in shadow in our lives. And we don't have those painful points touched as often. But what if we go looking for them and seeing what is actually there in this terrain of our land? Is there a is there a set of or maybe a single obstacle that you see that gets in our way of exploring this the wild wilder unexplored places within Mm. us i would have to say it feels like fear is the number one issue Um, afraid of what we'll find uh, feeling insecure anytime we feel triggered or angry there those are usually emotions that have something to do with some kind of fear. It could be just fear of the unfamiliar, or it could be fear of bringing up old pain, because we love to avoid pain, and that's natural. That's nothing to be ashamed of. But by avoiding it or running away, we never get a chance to deeply heal and feel God's presence within those painful moments. I wonder, do you... I get the sense that Christian tradition is not necessary, at least modern Western Christian tradition doesn't help all that much with this either. To your, to, we were talking before about a whole kerfuffle that happened around um, the idea of contemplation and people shouting it down as mm-hmm. some sort of new age, whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you sense that the way into these deeper unexplored lands is often a way that puts us at odds with the communities maybe that shaped us and formed us. Does mm. that, does that resonate? It can. I, I think um, particularly for people in this hemisphere, um, I would say like Canada, United States and other places that have been influenced by European colonization are Christianity is just steeped in empire theology. And so it really has to be reflected on and dismantled. Or we do, I think, wind up being at odds um, because our Christianity, most of these institutions and institutions in general are about maintaining the status quo. And if the status quo has been toxic or um, oppressive to other people, the last thing people want who are propping up this institution or this type of culture, or say a a culture of a lot of hierarchy, the last thing they want is for people coming in and messing with it or calling it into question or um, asking potentially painful questions. So I think at times our journey of deconstruction and then reconstruction, uh, and someone said it well, is it deconstruction and reconstruction or is this metanoia? Is this repenting and returning and returning and returning and turning our face toward God? When we turn our face toward God, all our idols are exposed and we have so many idols. We have made so many idols out of who we think God is. 
uh, whether God is someone who would, you know, invade another country or, um, you know, these kind of things that are really power-based ways of understanding the world. So sometimes they're at really direct odds. Uh, if we're following Jesus and acting like Jesus, it might look really differently from our culture and even our religious or Christian culture. Yeah. When it comes to someone who either you're walking with in your listening work or um, someone who's just hearing the podcast and wanting to take a, a step forward, what is the path? Where does the path begin to exploring these wild lands that you talk about in your book? Well, I hope that it can begin not as a self-help or solo attempt, that it can begin with wise, trusted, trained people, whether that's a, a trained therapist or spiritual director who's had plenty of experience walking with people through both the good and the bad and the ugly. I guess that's not both, it's among, <laughs> among the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, that it should not be something we undertake as our own little project, but that it be undertaken in community and with wise elders that have already walked before us, as well as just a kind of understanding that there'll be some points of discomfort. And after uh, you open the door to fear, it sounds like a monster rattling and banging on the other side, sounds huge. You open the door to fear and out runs this little chipmunk kind of monster and you're like wow that was making a lot of racket and I was afraid to go in there but now that I open the door it's reality is isn't as scary as my fears made them out to be um, I guess just kind of being willing to be dependent on God through the process of getting to know ourselves and in the process of getting to know ourselves we can understand how deeply loved we are by God who already knows everything about us anyway Is there a particular, um, a particular gift or effect or impact that you hope your book will have on people who read it? I hope that um, people will give it a chance and not get afraid and shut the book if it gets hard. Uh, and for some people, it will get harder uh, than for other people because... Um, some of us are, we can only go as far as we're ready to go. And I think God draws us to what we're ready to do and accompanies us in the process of it. I guess the book will take on a life of its own, no matter what I wish for it. But <laughs> I hope that it blesses people with a kind of accompaniment on their journey. And it's the kind of thing that people do uh, together and build bonds together and build closer relationships. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving this, this gift. Thank you for writing this book. And this time has been really, really great and mm. insightful. And there's about an hour and a half more that I would love to talk <laughs> with you about, but thank you for taking time and just sharing your, your story and your spirit with us. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
I hope that conversation had some rich insight for you. I so enjoyed talking with Lisa and enjoyed her book, and I believe you will. It's called The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. And so I would ask you to pick up her book, but I would also ask you to take on this question. Where is a place within you that you know is wild, maybe a a little frightening? Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's a challenge or a struggle that you've always had. And I would ask you to really listen and see if God is not inviting you to follow spirit into that place and to listen well for what might be there, whether it's new work for you to do that would not only change your inner world, but also your relationships and your work and your understanding of your vocation. Is there an untamed wild place within you where spirit is inviting you to just sit and rest so you can see and come to know your own soul in a better way. Lisa Cologne DeLay is a teacher, spiritual director, and host of Spark My Muse, which is a top-rated religion and spirituality podcast. She's originally from Puerto Rico, and DeLay has an MA in spiritual formation, and she's taught in many different settings, uh, from graduate schools to workshops. Her work has appeared in several anthologies and in dozens of places in print and online. And she offers spiritual companioning or spiritual friendship, spiritual directors, direction, and retreats. Uh, she lives with her family outside of Philadelphia. If you check out the show notes, you can find a link to her blog, her podcast, and where you can pick up the book. For those of you listening, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're streaming on my website, thank you. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, we're on Amazon Music now. If that's uh, your jam, feel free to go there. Uh, Google Play, any other platform you use podcasting. If you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing wherever you uh, listen to this podcast, that would be really helpful. And let me know if there are some guests or some things we could do to make it a, a better experience for you. And so, my friends, may you take the invitation to explore the wild land within and know that spirit will meet you there and there is nothing but grace for you in doing that good and holy work. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace.